If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 66. We are at Psalm 66. Prayer is undoubtedly one of the most precious privileges of the Christian life. We are given the right, we are even given the invitation, the encouragement to come before Almighty God with our requests, with our needs, with our desires. When we look in the Bible, prayer is given a prominent place. It is literally all over the pages of the Bible. Some uh, form of the word prayer occurs over 500 times in the Old and New Testaments. Moreover, that doesn't count all of the Psalms, which in uh, and of themselves are prayers to God, sometimes though in song form. Why is such attention given to this religious practice? Because the Bible is clear it's about more than simply being a religious practice. Our fellowship with God, our relationship to Him is furthered by our life of prayer to Him. Last week we talked about how the entirety of the Christian life is founded upon two pillars, prayer and the Word. And in these things we find our fellowship with God established and deepened. And last week we looked at how God speaks through His Word, how He speaks in a way so as to cause us to be a holy people set apart from the world. This morning we want to consider the second pillar, namely the pillar of prayer. We just said that prayer was one of the most precious privileges of the Christian life. But what happens when our prayers seem to fail or fall short? When it seems like God is not listening to our prayers? What's what's wrong in those moments? Particularly those of us who are absolutely clear and rock solid in our confidence that we are children of the Most High God, that we have trusted in the name of Christ for our salvation and therefore are adopted as His children, and yet God seems to not be listening to our prayers. Where does the fault lie, with Him or with us? What needs to change? This morning we need to consider these questions as we think through the end of Psalm 66. And so I invite you to follow along as I begin reading at verse 16. The psalmist says, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what He has done for my soul. I cried to Him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because He has not rejected my prayer or removed His steadfast love from me. This is the Word of God this morning. May He bless its reading. Last week we saw that God's Word makes us holy. This week we want to see why holiness is necessary for an effective prayer life. From these verses, we want to begin, though, by seeing this comforting thought, and that is this. God is a God who hears prayer. God is a God who hears prayer. And so as we think about that, we want to to, to dwell on verse 19 for just a minute. God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. When, When you call out to God, He is not a God who is uninterested 
in hearing the prayers of people in this world. It's a great contrast in my mind as I think about all those who would bow down to a false god, who would bow down to an image on paper or something cut from a rock or fashioned from plastic sitting on the dashboard of their car. They are calling out for mercy. They are calling out for help. They are calling out perhaps even for forgiveness. But their prayers are going unheard because they're not calling out to the one true and living God, the only God who can actually hear and respond to prayer. But such is not the God of the Bible. He is not the God of our invention or our tradition. He is the living God. And the psalmist says, He has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. What kind of God is this? What kind of God is it that listens to prayer? How how should we be thinking about Him as we approach Him in prayer? That's what we want to see as we begin here. We see the God who hears prayer is, first of all, a God to be feared. He is a God to be feared. The psalmist says, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what He has done for my soul. The psalmist assumes that there are those who fear God, but what does he mean? What does it mean to fear God? Well, today, fear is often seen as a bad thing something that we do not want as part of our lives. But biblically speaking, that's not where the psalmist is coming from. Chris Poblente talks about being in the rural parts of Uganda and Rwanda and how they are far more likely to understand the biblical concept of the fear of God than we are today in this country. He says this, quote, They understand that God is mighty and they are not. They understand that they are dependent upon God to send rain so they can grow food and eat and drink and live. When a Ugandan Muslim girl asked us what the religious landscape looked like in America, we included atheism in our response. Confused, she asked, what is atheism? When she learned that atheism is the belief that there is no God, she was floored. Not believe in God? Even though this young woman did not believe in the God of the Bible, she knew enough about our fallen world from living in an impoverished Ugandan village that she could easily acknowledge she was not entitled to anything. She knew to be thankful for simple things like food and shelter. She knew she answered to something or someone bigger than herself for her very existence. That's getting at what the Bible talks about when it speaks about the fear of the Lord. That, that when it is shown to, to God, it is, not, it is not leading us to be servile or, or to feel terrorized or something that leads us away from God. Quite the opposite. It is filial. It is worshipful. It is something that draws us closer to God in reverent obedience to Him. The fear of the Lord begins by acknowledging that He has power over us. He has the power to give and to take away, to give life and to bring death, to form us in our mother's womb, to number our days, and to do with us whatever He pleases. But the fear of the Lord also goes to acknowledge He has spiritual power power to save sinners, to reverse death, to destroy the bonds of Satan and sin. He is the mighty Savior and great Redeemer who can regenerate a heart and reform it from the inside out and help us and keep us for all eternity. That kind of fear should move us to worship, but not just worship, but to joyful, humble obedience to God as well. It should lead us to be ready to acknowledge that all that we have comes from His hand and that all that we are is dependent upon Him and in His generosity and mercy. That's the kind of God who hears our prayer. He is a God to be feared. And so when we come before Him, we should know the fear of the Lord. But secondly, we see from these verses that the God who hears prayer is a God to be honored. A God to be honored. Notice again verse 16. Come and hear 
all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. Now, what is the psalmist doing here? What, what, what is taking place in this verse? He's calling together God's people so that he can tell them of God's greatness. He says, gather around. I have something I want to tell you. Come here. Come close because I want to tell you what God has done for my soul. I want to tell you about what he has done in the world and even in my life. He is bearing witness to the mighty work of God as he has known it. About this, the Puritan pastor Matthew Henry says this, What we win by prayer, we must wear with praise. God's people should communicate their experiences to each other. We should take all occasions to tell one another of the great and kind things which God has done for us, especially which He has done for our souls, the spiritual blessings with which He's blessed us in the heavenly places. These we should be most affected with ourselves, and therefore with these we should be most desirous to affect others. Henry is right. He says that the psalmist knows exactly what is the right thing to do. When we have experienced change and blessing, especially of a spiritual nature from the hand of God, we should want to tell others about that. Specifically, we should want to, to announce it in the congregation of the righteous, of those who fear God. We, on the other end, should, should want to hear about those things. Why should we want to tell them? Because ultimately, telling of what God has done honors God. It brings honor to him. First, it, it brings honor by pointing directly to him as the one who accomplished great things. If something goes well in our life, do we just allow people to assume that it was because we had a clever idea or because luck was a lady tonight or because of some other common misbelief? Or, or, or are we clear to say, no, 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 God did this. God did this. Uh, well, one of the things when... Whenever we have, and, and it, it's been a while, maybe we should probably do it again sometime, um, but, but whenever we have had people come onto the platform to give testimony, um, whenever we've prepped mission teams about sharing when they're coming back, it's all, I've always been clear to say, look, remember what you're doing here. You're not just describing what happened. You're not just talking about how much you enjoyed the event. You are here at this moment, at this time, to tell what God has done. Don't put the focus on yourself. Put the focus on God. That's what the, the psalmist is doing here. God has heard my prayer. Let me tell you what he has done for me. It honors God. But secondly, Secondly, giving witness to God's work honors him in that it shows him to be a God who hears prayer and encourages others to go before him. If the psalmist says, I cried out to the Lord and he did something to me, he heard my prayer and he answered, wouldn't that encourage other Israelites to want to go before God to be heard as well? Likewise for us, that we want to hear not just of your requests, we want to hear of the praises, of the answers that God has given to them. It is honoring to God. We see here that God is a God who should be feared, who should be honored. And finally, from these verses, we see that God is a God to be praised. God is a God to be praised. In verse 17, the psalmist says, I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. Now, notice how this verse differs from the one we just looked at. Here, he's not praising God to others after the prayer. Rather, he is praising God to God in the midst of prayer. In other words, he is speaking directly to God in prayer and praising him. He is adoring him. I think that's probably one of the most difficult parts of prayer for us today. In part because we have an entire culture that's built on praising ourselves. 
of putting ourselves out there, of promoting ourselves, uh, of, of uh, creating vast resumes that, that, uh, that include all of our accomplishments. I saw a, um, an interesting little news article about a guy in China who's wanting to, to buy some big business, and his business card, his standard size business card, but aside from his picture and a tiny little line of contact information, uh, every line, um, it doesn't just list one qualification, but like seven. And they're like, you know, um, uh, not even like simple ones, you know, like CEO of this, but world's largest benefactor of China, you know, something like that was listed on the card. And you're just thinking, wow, why did toot your own horn, dude? But, but that's the culture in which we live, isn't it? Uh, we're all trying to, to, to point to ourselves and have others think well of us. And I think that might be one of the reasons why it's hard for us to give praise to God in prayer. Even when we gather together, uh, on Saturdays, and we say, now is the time, we're going to ask for things later, but we're just going to praise God. Do you know how easy it is to slip into asking? It's our default mode of praying. Give me, give me, give me. Not because it's inherently bad to ask for things, it's not. But because I think it's hard for us to give praise to God even when it is due Him. Some of you, hopefully all of you, that are of a certain age at least, are familiar with John Adams he was not only a patriot in the American Revolution, but the second president of the United States. Before he was president, he served as an ambassador to France, and years later, he sent his son there, John Quincy Adams, to finish his education. History tells us that John Quincy, as he was called by his father, used to write home about all of his experiences in France. On one occasion, he witnessed the baptism of King Louis XVI's infant in the Notre Dame Cathedral. He observed that as the king made his way to the front of the church, everyone in attendance paid homage to him as their royal sovereign. Yet when the king himself, when Louis arrived at the front of the church, the first thing that he did was drop to his knees before the altar. And for the next half hour, as the king was on his knees, a massive choir sang songs of worship to God. Writing to his parents, John Quincy said this, quote, What a sight! An absolute king of one of the most powerful empires on earth and perhaps a thousand of the first personages of that empire adoring the divinity, the God who created them, in acknowledging that he can in a moment reduce them to the dust from which they spring. God is our creator and should be praised, but much more, he is our savior through Christ and deserves our praise. Someone points out that perhaps the reason why we struggle with praise so much is because we've filled up our, our minds and our hearts and our spiritual appetites with so many of the things that it's hard to be captivated by God's glory. Perhaps we spend so much time grazing at the table of God's gifts, we have no appetite left for Him. The glories of friendships and the wonders of creation and the beauty of family and the refreshment of rest and sports, the creativity of story and literature. We nibble and nibble and nibble until we have no appetite left for God. And all the praise goes to the gifts rather than the giver of that gifts. Whatever the reason for our lack of praise, here is where the word of God becomes helpful to us in prayer. Here we read of God's character. Here we read of God's works. Here we read of God's redemption. It reminds us of the things that in this world pale in comparison to him. Things that we praise in the drop of a hat. How much more we should be praising God above all. Cold water is, as it were, splashed on our souls as we are reminded that He is the one who is deserving of praise. 
That's the kind of God that we pray to. That's the kind of God that hears our prayers. A mighty and merciful God. Fear-inspiring God who deserves our honor and praise. That, that's the one that we're going to. This is the great and mighty king when we, when we close our eyes and open our mouths that we are asking to, to be with us, that we are asking to bless us and to help us in times of needs, to save us from our sins. This is the kind of God who enjoys the prayers of his people. He is not deaf to them. He does not get bothered or bored by your constant approach to his throne of grace. Nevertheless, the psalmist is quick to give a warning about God in our prayers. Our prayers to God can be hindered. Again, not because He is unwilling to hear, but because we are unwilling to yield our life to Him. Here we turn to verse 18 and we see not only the God who hears prayer, but the sin that hinders prayer. The sin that hinders prayer. The psalmist says, I cried to Him with my mouth and high praises on my tongue. But if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. The psalmist is reminding us that prayer isn't magical or mechanical, it's relational. When we pray, we are coming to a heavenly father, not a vending machine. And sin affects that relationship just like it affects any other. Notice, first of all, that this is a sin that is despised. This is a sin that is despised. The Bible uses different words to describe sin. And they all give shades of nuance and meaning for how we think about our rebellion against God. Here the word is iniquity and it refers to that which is vile and abhorrent to God. I wonder if that's how we think about sin all the time. I wonder if, I wonder if part of the reason why we struggle with caring for and pursuing holiness is because we've not really thought about uh, the the sheer sinfulness of sin. We've not thought about its vile and repugnant nature to God and therefore hopefully to us as well. This week I was uh, listening to the news and uh, one of the headlines was about the, the new movie The Wolf of Wall Street. Among other things, it broke records for having the most uses of the F word of any movie in all time so far. Not exactly the kind of... Um, award I would like to win or necessarily endorse. But beyond that, it was also mentioned to have several explicit bedroom scenes and on and on and on and on. And maybe I'm just getting old, but on one of the sites that talked about this news story, I was amazed by the so-called Christians who tried to make excuses for why it was okay to go and watch that movie and to sit and be subjective in the, in the midst of that filth, and to come away looking for redemptive themes. Loved ones, as far as I can see from the Bible, art is never an excuse for filth and sin. The, the, the world may say that, and I'm not anti-art, I love art. But art, for the sake of art, is not an excuse to expose ourselves to the things that God finds repugnant. It's not an excuse for us to be entertained or titillated by that which God condemns as worthy of hell. There's a difference in a, in a, in a work that deals with adult themes and another that revels in its glory. Moreover, there's a point at which you surely just have to say, it's too much, I'm out, I'm out. Please understand, I'm not advocating that, that we you know, abandon the movie theaters and throw out the televisions, although, frankly, we would not be the worst for it. 
but 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 as one who enjoys movies and and television there just has to be a point where we say even with editing even with everything else it's just too much that we just have no business being there for those who would say well we got to be culturally engaged read the new york times review you will need to know everything there is to know about that movie and be engaged with the culture but as God's people, we cannot be blind to the sinfulness, the repugnancy, the, 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 the spiritual malignancy of sin. Remember, it was for sin that Jesus, God's own Son, took on flesh and hung on a cross and endured the wrath of Almighty God for us. Because that's what we deserved, even for the smallest of offenses. But even here, we can go too far. We must be careful that we understand what the psalmist is saying and what he is not saying. The psalmist in arguing that iniquity in his heart would have kept God from hearing his prayers is not saying that all iniquity keeps God from hearing his prayers. For if that were the case, then God would hear no one. For no one stands without sin before God. That's the whole point of Jesus. We need a Savior. And we need that saving process to not just forgive us, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which will not happen until the final day when God transforms our bodies. Rather, notice what he says. It is not just, it is not just any sin, but it is a sin that is cherished. It is a sin that is cherished. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, he says, the Lord would not have listened. What, what does it mean to cherish sin? Again, Matthew Henry is particularly helpful and how he explains this, he says that to cherish means to have favorable thoughts of, to love it, indulge it, allow myself in it, to treat it as a friend and bid it welcome, to make provision for it and am loath to take, to, to take, up, take it apart, uh, to be parted with it, to roll it under my tongue as a sweet morsel, to make much of it and delight in it. That's what the psalmist is talking about when it comes to cherishing sin. It's not simply, I sinned, I'm sorry, I repent, I, I feel terrible. It, it's, when, it's when we say, I love this sin so much, it's like a warm blanket on a cold night. It's like, it's like my dearest friend that I go to when, when the world is not treating me the way that it should, when life is beating me up. It's that, it's that, it's that me time thing that no one's going to take away from me, though God calls it evil. That's what he means to cherish sin in our hearts. In this way, the psalmist is talking about the very same thing that the Apostle John talks about in his letter. In 1 John 3, he talks about the fact that Christians should not make a habit of sinning. And again, he's not thinking of individual sins. He's thinking of that one sin that you cling to, like grim death, and say, I'm never going to let this go. I enjoy it too much. Even though God says it's toxic to your soul. In the same letter, John makes it clear that he doesn't expect believers to be complete without sin, but rather it is the willful indulgement of the same sin over and over and over. That's what John says is unacceptable to God and what the psalmist says will hinder our prayers. And it's not hard to understand why. Last week we saw that as Christians, we are called to be set apart from the world. We were called to be pulled out and sanctified for God, not just from sin, but for His ways. That, 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 part of that part of that growth and holiness is, is, a, is, a, is a reformatting of our cerebral hard drives that we no longer just live the way we once lived. We live out the ways of God. If God has called us to that and we intentionally disregard that, if we put the brakes on, if we see God saying this is the way to live and we say I don't want to go that way, I like my old life, you can imagine why God would not want to listen to us in our prayers. 
Spurgeon says it would be as if our prayers are the prayers offered by traitors before God. So in Psalm 51, here's what the Lord says to Israel. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Notice Isaiah makes it clear there's nothing wrong with God. God's not the problem here. He is mighty to save. He is able to hear. But because you cling to sin and refuse to give it up, he is unwilling to hear. Now what kind of sins are we talking about? And we've kind of just had it be all sin, and, 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 and there's something right and true about that. But here's the danger, is that these things remain vague in our minds. Without the specificity, without some level of specificity, we might not be able to connect the dots between our sinful actions, our sinful attitudes, and our hindrance before God in prayer. So what I want to do is give a few specific examples of sin. Sp- specifically, to use that word again, sins that the Bible says affect how God hears our prayers. So it's not just me picking random sins or my favorite sins or whatever it may be. These are ones the Bible elsewhere specifically says, these affect how God hears you. So here you go. The first one is this. Misplaced motives will hinder your prayers. Misplaced motives. James 4, there the Lord's brother says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Are we selfish in our prayers? Are we just thinking about what I want and not necessarily what I need or what might be to God's glory? Are we really asking in Jesus' name or in our own name? I love what William Grinnell says. He says, Christian, catechize thyself before thou prayest. In other words, question yourself. Ask yourself, O my soul, what sins thee on this errand? Why am I going before God and asking for this right now? What's motivating me? to ask for the things I'm asking. Misplaced motives can hinder your prayers, but also disregarding God can can hinder your prayers. Disregarding God. Proverbs 28 makes it clear that if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. The law is meant to guide God's people. It was and still is His way of leading us in the way that we should go. If we decide we don't want to hear from God, why should we expect Him to want to hear from us? I mean, would, would, would we have it any other way in a human relationship? If every time you called a friend and they said, you know what, I'm not really interested in talking to you today, bye, and hung up, you think you would keep calling them? Probably not. Do you think you would want them to call you? Probably not. Failing to forgive can hinder our prayers. Failing to forgive. In Mark 11, Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. There's no reason, listen to this, there's no reason why God should forgive you, should forgive me. No reason whatsoever. He's not bound by cosmic law. He is cosmic law. Any sense of right and wrong and justice and mercy comes from Him. So He's not bound to forgive us. There's nothing in us that requires Him to look upon us and send Christ to die for us. It is a sheer act of His love, His mercy, and His grace. All undeserved. And if the God of the universe can extend such patient mercy to us and forgive us, then where in the world do we get off not forgiving somebody else when we're just lowly, sinful people in need of forgiveness? And it's been given to us by God. 
God says, I have given you this amazing, unbelievable thing at the cost of my very own son. And if you cannot mind a sin from somebody else, if you cannot forgive and let go, then our relationship is not going to be such that you can come freely before my throne. Finally, we see that dishonored wives can hinder our prayers. Dishonored wives can hinder our prayers. Husbands, there's plenty of verses that talk about how to treat your wife in the Bible. But if you fail to do what God says, he may not want to hear your prayers. 1 Peter 3 says this, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now what now, to be honest, he never says anything directly to wives like that, nowhere in the Bible. It's not saying that it doesn't apply the other direction, but the weight of responsibility for that relationship is on you, husbands. And the reason why is because God created marriage not as an end for itself, not as a means of, of simple procreation or of growing in affection with one person, but to picture the relationship between Christ and His people, Jesus and His bride, the church. And therefore, if we are messing that picture up, We are dishonoring Christ himself and God who saves us. And therefore, God says he may be unwilling to hear our prayers because of it. You know, it's become quite popular today to say something like this. As a Christian, God only sees Jesus when he looks at me. That's not completely true. It is true. When it comes to our justification, our legal standing before God, that it is the righteousness of Jesus that has been counted as ours. That happens when we trust in Christ to be our Savior. But that doesn't mean that God never takes notice of our sins after that. As with any relationship, our intimacy with God will grow over time as we spend more and more time with Him and His Word, being changed by gazing at His glory, deepening in, his tr- in our trust of Him, and abiding in fellowship through Jesus. But that growth, just like our prayers, can be hindered by our sin. Our fellowship can be hindered when we cherish iniquity. And although God may still hear our prayers, God may still answer our prayers, we should not feel that He is obligated to. We should not presume that He must hear our prayers. But here's the comforting assurance that we have in Christ. Though we sin, though we may cherish iniquity, we can always get forgiveness towards the end of the new testament in the book of first john we read this if we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of jesus his son cleanses us from all sins if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us but if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. John says, look, here's what we're called to do as as Christians, walk in the light. But that doesn't mean be sinless. If we try and say we have no sin, we're liars. That's what John just said. And he's writing to Christians. He's not writing to lost people. Rather, he says, walking in the light is intentionally pursuing God. That's what that means. 
So when we're reading God's word or we're hearing a sermon or listening to someone else talk and the light of God's truth reveals our sin, we do not retreat out of it back to the darkness to cling to our sin. We stay in the light and let God deal with the sin. We look to Jesus, the righteous one, whose blood purifies us from all sins. D.A. Carson says, The blood is a symbol of life violently and sacrificially ended, the just for the unjust that we might be forgiven. It's John's way of reminding us that forgiveness to sinners only comes through the death of Christ on the cross. And you deal with sin as a Christian the same way you dealt with it when you were a non-Christian and became a Christian. You go to God in prayer and say, God, I am a sinner. Look on Christ and have mercy towards me. You're not asking God to save you over again. You're asking him to apply the same remedy to the relationship that he replied to redeem your soul, namely the blood of his righteous son. In that way, our fellowship and our intimacy with him will be restored. This is the essence of the Christian life, not living shamelessly, carelessly in sin, but continually confessing our sin before God, trusting that in Christ we alone can find cleansing. And that's what we're called to in our passage in Psalm 66 as well. For the sake of our prayers as well as for our souls, we are called to pursue holiness by forsaking sin, by not clinging to it, by not loving it, by not coddling it like our firstborn child. And if we do that, if by God's grace we put sin to death in our hearts and like the psalmist, we will be able to say, truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Father, even as we come before you now, we come with forgiveness on our lips. God, we come asking that you would look to Christ and forgive us of our sins. That Lord, our prayer life before you, our communication with you, our, our very fellowship with you would not be hindered, God, because we've clung too closely to sin, because we've, we've cherished it in our hearts and not seen it for what it is. God, forgive us and make us to be not only a people who long to pray, but a people who are heard when we pray. Because though not perfect, we have sought holiness and the riddance of sin in our lives. Father, we are thankful that you are a God who hears prayer. We are thankful that we have forgiveness for sins in Christ. And so, God, we pray that this day we would have hope in our prayers. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.